Tonight, we're going to be walking through the book of Romans chapter 12. So take your Bible, turn there, Romans 12, and um, we'll do this for the next half hour or so before the Lord's Supper. Romans chapter 12, we've been working through the book of Romans now for several weeks, or many months actually, and as we've come to this part, I mentioned last time we met together that Romans 12 gives us the hinge for the book, that everything really centers on Romans 12, 1 and 2, that Romans, 12, Romans 1 through 11 give us the doctrine of the book, give us the doctrine of salvation, the gospel message. He says in 117, the gospel is the power of God, the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek, that the gospel message is not just for the Jewish nation, not just for Jewish people, it has gone to the world, and we are partakers of the gospel message. We are, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a partaker of the gospel, and you become uh, a child of God. You become one of his people. You are grafted into the blessings that God has promised even through Abraham. And he talks about this at length. He deals with the, the way this happens, the problem first, verses one, chapters 1 through 3, dealing with the problem of sin, and how sin has pervaded every culture and every person. There's not a single person who's alive or has been alive except Jesus Christ himself, who did not sin and need to be saved. Jesus is the the perfect man who takes the place of Adam. He is God in the flesh. We see that in Romans chapter 5. And Romans 4 through 6 deal with the fact that, or 4 and 5 deal with the fact that through faith in this Jesus Christ, we can have salvation. Through faith in him, he has saved us from our sin. He has saved us from this sin that we all have partaken in, Romans 1 through 3. And then Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with some of the practical implications of this gospel message in our daily lives, the doctrinal implications that we are united with Jesus, that we are united with him by baptism into death. So like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk with a new life, Romans 6, and then Romans 7, this new life we live is difficult. Sometimes there are ups and downs. Romans 8 deals with the, the Spirit of God working in our lives. Romans 9 through 11 deal with the truth of the, of the nation of Israel, that if, if this is true with us, then why did it na- why the nation of Israel, why did they reject Christ? And he ends chapter 11 giving glory to God for his great wisdom. And then in chapter 12, we have this exhortation, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God is your reasonable service or act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here is that hinge, that, that, that centerpiece. And from this point on, the book of Romans is very practically telling us how to work out the gospel in our lives. Because if you believe the gospel, your life will change. If you believe the gospel will have implications for your life and how you live out your life. Because people today often say they believe the gospel, but they do not actually live out the gospel. And if we live out the gospel, what does it look like? He gives some incredibly detailed and very specific ways in which the gospel works itself out in our daily life. And so today we're going to examine that. We're going to see where we line up and how we measure up to Christ's demands here on our life for those who live in the gospel. We pray as we go together, please, before the Lord. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom and grace as we look at your word. We thank you for the direction you give us in very practical manners for matters for how we are to live with one another according to um, the gospel truth. And Father, I pray that we would be submissive to your ways and we would be submissive to your, uh, your, your will for our hearts, that we would be conformed to your word, not conformed to this world. 
Let us be sacrificed on the altar, Lord. Let our hearts be fully committed to you. And we thank you for the time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. I think probably no other chapter is quite so practical as Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Why don't we look at it together? I have the, um, the screen up behind me. We'll see what he describes, really. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, is, 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 um, is going to start the section of practical application. Read with me. He says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you. Now, who is his audience? Who is he speaking to? He is speaking to the people in the church. Your first blank is your relationships within the church. He deals with how do you relate to people in the, peop- in the gospel uh, community, in the church of Christ. The way you respond to people is different than the way you would respond at work and the way you would respond in the world and the way you would respond in the marketplace. There is a difference in the way you relate to people. He says here, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, specifically speaking to the people in the church, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What we see first, the first command here, is that you do not think too highly, too highly of yourself in the family of Christ. The audience here, speaking of the church family, the command is to begin with your mindset. Your thinking is to overcome pride, overcome spiritual pride. We all have an overestimated view of ourselves. I think there's not a person who doesn't struggle with the fact that we think very highly of ourselves. And he begins here. I think a lot of our sins and a lot of our problems with people begin with this issue. We think very highly of ourselves, and we love ourselves, and we promote ourselves. And many Christian churches teach you today that you need to love yourself, and you need to promote yourself. And friends, that is contrary to the Word of God, which teaches us you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You need to have a reality check on who you are. You need to see yourself as a sinner. And I, so I have some questions here. Do you think you deserve better than what you have? A lot of people do. A lot of people think they deserve better than what they have, which is why there's some people here at church who I, I love talking to them. I say, how are you doing? They say, better than I deserve. And you know who you are, right? Some of you say that. That's wonderful. You're, you, are, you are aware of the fact that you deserve uh, death and hell and separation from God forever, but for Jesus. So praise the Lord, I'm better than I deserve right? We can say, hey, I am thankful for where I am. Do you think that you are better than other people in your church? Do you look around at people in the pews and say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so, or at least I'm not that person over there? Do you have that mindset? If so, then you are falling into this trap, or are you embarrassed by the believers in your circle? Are you, do you find yourself embarrassed of other believers? Do you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think? The alternative to thinking too highly is to think soberly. There's your word there, soberly, which is the word having to do with wisdom. It means being measured, having self-control. And in fact, this word continues throughout the New Testament to describe a general attitude of self-control among believers. Believers ought not to be people who are loose cannons. We ought to be measured and under control. Because salvation is not earned by your performance, it is something that has been given to you, you ought not to think highly of yourself, too highly of yourself in the family of Christ. You are to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We are to live in accordance with the faith 
we have. Secondly, notice that we are to use your gifts for the family of Christ. In verse 4, he says for, and he explains what it looks like. This is a, an explanation of what it looks like to live soberly in the church. For as we have many members in one body, but not all the members do not, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Here's an illustration that is very familiar to most of you. The illustration is of the human body composed of different members within the same body, different body parts. Can any of you think of a Bible verse that uh, also, a passage of the Scripture that also deals with this particular uh, illustration of the church uh, being used? Yes, sir. That's right. We have 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12, and 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27. Both deal with this uh, idea. He says, as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And in verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members individually. The picture here is that we are, we are members, we are parts of a body. We are not the, bo- we are not the whole body. That we, we contribute something to the church. Because of how God has made us, we contribute something. Now, do you see the difference between thinking that you are the end-all, be-all, perfect uh, encapsulation of the body, though that Christ is the body, is the body of Christ. He is perfect, but we just contribute to the body. We are part of the body. We are members of the body, and members all have an important role to play. And the picture in 1 Corinthians is that of a foot or that of a hand, and he says, if you know the hand can't save the foot, I have no need of you. Or the nose can't say to the ears, I have no need of you. Because if there's no nose, where's the smelling? If there's no ears, where are the hearing? We all have something to participate in, something to contribute in. And this is important for us to keep, keep track of. We are to use our gifts in the church of God. So keep reading. He says, we being many are one body and individually members of each other. We are one body in Christ. Each of us is a member. Verse 6 is having then, because, that basically it's saying because we are this way, we are members in a body, we are part of something bigger. There's something bigger than us that we're part of. Because of that, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given in us. Stop there for a second. What is he saying? That we have gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. What does that mean? That means that, what does that mean about, the, about you sitting in the pew? Right? Sitting, excuse me, in the chair. We don't have pews here. What does it mean? Exactly. We all are different from one another. We have gifts differing. And that is okay, and that is right, that, that we have different ways to contribute to the body of Christ according to the grace that is given to us, according to the gift, that word grace is, is gift that is given to us. God has given these gifts to us. Let us use them. Now, if God has given us the gifts, where is the pride? Where is the pride? It, well, in God, right? In fact, Paul says, I boast in God, right? If, if, if I have been given something, I cannot boast about having it. It's not mine that, that I can boast about. God has given it to me, therefore he gets the glory, right? 
Uh, and, and I think all of us, a lot of us act like my children. I'm going to use my children as an example here, and, and I'm going to use it vague enough that none of them gets a dollar. So we have a rule in our family that if I name one of my kids, they get a dollar for, uh, for every illustration. So one of my children, whom I will not name, um, we, we got ice cream the other night as a, as a celebration. We got ice cream, and we're sitting around, and um, I asked this child if I could have a bite of this child's ice cream. And you know what they said? They said no. This has happened so many times. And I don't understand where the disconnect is because I was the one who pushed the button on the thing. I was the one who handed my credit card over. I was the one who did all of the things that led to the ice cream being given to my children. They all got the ice cream from the lady behind the counter, but I was responsible for the gift. And they had the audacity to look at me and say, no, it's what? It's mine. Now, wait a second. Who gave you that ice cream? I did. Okay, I gave the ice cream. Why do I not get a bite of that ice cream? Well, because now it's mine, and I have it, and I like it, and I don't want to give it back to you. I don't want to give you what you gave to me. You see, as Christians, we have been given freely so many good things. And, and it's not exactly the same. I know the analogy is not the same, but we so quickly, the point I'm trying to make is we so quickly forget how it is that we have the gifts we have. We, we, go from, we go from, Lord, may I have this gift. He gives us a gift, and then we get enamored with the gift, and we forget about the giver of the gift. Does that make sense? We do it all the time. I do it. We get, we get lost in the gift itself, and we forget about the one who gave us the gift. We don't give thanks. We don't give credit. We don't give glory, and we instead think about the gift itself. And so we use the gifts wrongly to consume it on ourselves to promote ourselves. And we do not think about the one who gave us the gift. God has given us the gifts, therefore we can't take credit for the gifts when we exercise them. We cannot take credit for the gifts we exercise. That's your blank there. We cannot take the credit for the gifts that we exercise. Also, we are, because God has given us these gifts, we are responsible to exercise the gifts for His glory and for His benefit. His glory and His benefit. That is the reason we've been given these gifts. If we use the gifts for our own glory or for our own benefit, we are misusing the gifts. And that's why I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Go back to this verse again and look at it. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, many are one body, so is Christ. You are the body of Christ. We are called to live out and use these gifts well. I want to show you as, we, as he goes through verse 6 through 8, read with me here again one more time. He starts to label these gifts. If prophecy... Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. Or he who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I don't know if you can read all my chicken scratch there, but you'll notice that he gives several different gifts, and then how they are to be used properly. So I actually put them 
here on a chart, and I, I want you to just follow through with this, okay? He first talks about prophecy, and he says this prophecy is to be in proportion to our faith. Now, that's kind of a difficult translation. The actual uh, Greek is the analog of faith. That is, it is in accordance to faith, and it's in accordance to the faith, which is fascinating because he's not, I don't think he's necessarily saying that prophesy however much faith you feel like you have. He's saying it's prophecy in accordance with the faith. That is, the words that they would speak must be in accordance, must be in uh, according to the, the faith that has been established, the faith. It's a fascinating phrase, and it's, it's, it can be difficult to understand, difficult to say, but I think the clearest way to say this is use your gift of prophecy of speaking for God in accordance with the faith. You don't do it on your own. You don't do it for your own benefit. Secondly, he talks about ministry, and he says use your gift in your ministry. When it comes to teaching, use your gift in your teaching. You see how he says that? He says, he who teaches in teaching. So if you're a teacher, use your gift in teaching. If you're a preacher, use your, preach, use your gift in prophesying. If you're an exhorter, use your gift, your spiritual gift, in exhortation. And then he gives three more, and he explains how these three gifts are to be used. The second was giving. He says, use your giving gift with liberality. That is, when you give, give with liberality. Don't be stingy in your giving. When you have the spiritual gift of, of giving, which many people do, there are some people who just have an eye for need, and they have a, a way of seeing how to make that need be filled perfectly with a gift, whether it's a word or an item or time or whatever it is. They're, they're, they see the need, and they can fill it perfectly, and some of you are gifted in that way. Don't be stingy with that. God has given you that gift, so use it. How about with leading? He says, when you lead, you are to lead with diligence. If you go back to the verse here, he says, he who exhort, I'm sorry, he, had us use, uh, he teaches in teaching, he who exhorts exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Use your gift by showing mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, have, have a cheerful heart when you're merciful to others. So the proper use of our spiritual gifts is very important. We are to use our gifts well because these gifts are for Christ and for his glory. As we keep going and speaking of using these gifts properly, we see in verses 9 through 13 that we are to show love, to show love for the family of Christ, show love for the family of Christ. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That is to be genuine in your love. This is a compound word, be genuine, has the idea of uh, not a hypocrite. Hupokrites was an actor, someone who would wear a mask. And the picture of hypocrite is just an English version of that Greek word, do not let your love be hypocritical. What does it look like to be hypocritical in your love? Well, I think there's a couple ways we can be hypocritical is that we can pretend to love but not love. We can pretend to love but not love. Uh, or we can love in front of people, but not when other people are not around. We can, we can love the, for the performance of it. We can love so that other people see us loving, right? We can, we can do all kinds of things that are hypocritical in our love and our relationships, but we are to show genuine love. And in order to show genuine love, or how do you show genuine love? Notice what he says here. How do you show genuine love? Abhor what is evil cling to what is good. Has it occurred to you that in order to love, you must abhor what is wicked and what is evil? 
And you know this is true because you hate what destroys what you love. You should abhor that which tears down what is good. There's, a, there's just a thought in the world today, in our culture today, that all hate is bad. Friends, the Bible does not teach that. You are to hate what is evil. You are to hate what destroys families. You are to hate what sin is lurking in your heart. If you don't hate that sin, and if you don't hate that what is evil, you will flirt with that which is evil. You will be friendly with that which is evil, and you have a hard time. The Bible calls, we are to mortify our flesh. We are to put to death the sin that is in us. And if you don't hate the sin that is in you, how will you put it to death? So part of loving people with genuine love is actually abhorring what is evil, but clinging to what is good. And in order to do that, you have to have discernment. And what is a prerequisite for having discernment about what is good and evil? Do you remember from Romans chapter 12? What's the prerequisite for knowing the difference between good and evil? Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us this. What is it? What is the prerequisite for knowing the difference between able to know what to hate and know what to cling to? What is it? I hear it somewhere. Yes, being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You will know God's will, what God desires for your life when you submit yourself to him. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You put your life on the altar, you submit your life to God, and then God allows you to have moral clarity. If you do not submit your life to him, if you say, I am going to make the shots here, call the shots here, I'm going to follow my own heart instead of what God says here, you will have moral ambiguity. You'll have, you'll have problems making decisions. You'll have a hard time deciding what do I abhor and what do I cling to. Have you noticed that in our culture today that people don't know what's good and what's bad? People don't know what to hate and what to love. People don't have any problem hating things, but they hate what is good and they love what is evil because their, their minds are twisted and they have not submitted to the truth of God. We are to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Romans chapter 12, verses 10 says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. These verses show that we need to show affection and love toward each other. Kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Do you know you have to like each other? There was, I remember somebody saying, you don't have to like each other, you just have to love each other. It actually says here, you have to like each other too. Did you know that? The Bible says, be affectionate to one another with brotherly love. You have to have warm, fuzzy feelings about people in the church. And that might be hard sometimes. Because maybe they grate you, or they just they irritate you, or they rub you the wrong way, or whatever you say. But you need to have, you need to pray for people so that you love them, and you need to you need to love people so that you end up liking them, and you need to like them because that's what God calls you to do. And you say, I can't control what I like. I don't think that's true. I think you can control what you like. You can control what you like because God commands us to like certain things and not like other things. And if God commands us to do something, there's some element of our responsibility to follow him. 
If, if we could not control what we like and who we don't like, then I don't think God would ever say that you have to be kindly affectionate to each other with brotherly love. And the way you show that is that you give preference to each other. You actually care what other people want, what other people think. This is hard work. This is hard to do. We are not to be lagging behind in our diligence. We are to be diligent and working hard. I, I just have some, some uh, thoughts here about work. I have seen Genesis 1 to 2. We are to show love for the family of Christ by, by working hard, being not, um, not lagging in diligence, but being fervent in spirit. Did you know that the work uh, that man was given a job to do before sin ever entered the world? Okay, man was given a job, man was given work before sin. Sin, the curse, does not give us work. The curse makes work harder and unfruitful. So God's plan for man always involved work. So to be diligent is to be fulfilling what God has planned for you. There's nothing wrong with work. Work is good. You ought to strive for work. Not lagging in diligence, but being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We ought to serve God with our whole heart. We ought to be a servant of the Lord. Work is also commanded. A couple of verses here. Did you know that the Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that you gives us these instructions. You aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you should walk properly towards those who are on the outside, that you may lack nothing. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, written to the same church, Paul says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. There is a problem where some people just don't like to work. They'd prefer not to work. They would prefer to do their own things rather than to work with their hands. And he says, you need to tell these people that that is being disobedient to God's commissioning for their lives. You should work. You should be diligent in how you live. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all. And what happens when you don't work? What do you become? A busybody. You will find something to do. It just won't be good. And this is the case. He says people become busybodies here instead of working. So be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And then he continues in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Several points here. We should be rejoicing in hope. We should rejoice that we have hope. We should rejoice about the hope that we have. Rejoicing is contagious. Despair is also contagious. When people are depressed, it spreads because other people get depressed when you're depressed. But when you rejoice, rejoicing is contagious. Rejoice in hope. Our culture has embraced despair. Our culture has embraced cynicism. We, as Christians, should instead respond with joy because we have the hope of Christ. We have hope that our culture does not have. And when you rejoice in hope, it makes a difference. Secondly, patient when facing tribulation. When you face hardship, how will you endure? Will you endure with patience, praying steadfastly, not giving up in prayers, asking the Lord and continuing to ask Him, giving to the needs of others, giving, distributing to the needs of the saints. There are saints, there are believers who will have needs, and it's our job to help them. And then, given to hospitality, we ought to be a hospitable people. Open our doors, and we have no fear of hospitality in our culture because we're not earning favor. We are not earning anything with God. We are, we are showing what God has given to us. We are sharing what God has given to us 
with others. Your relationship with the church, and then secondly, your relationship outside the church. He then deals with uh, how we are to deal with those who are outside the church, who are not necessarily in the church. At least that's how I take verses 14 through 21. He says, bless those who curse you. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Okay, we are to bless the people who persecute you, not curse them. You're tempted to curse them. And this word persecute means to put pressure on you, to press in on you, to, uh, to, to make demands of you. You are to bless them and not curse them. Good words and not bad words. You are to respond to others appropriately. Respond others appropriately. Look at verse 15 and notice what it says. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We were just talking about this in my family the other day. Rejoice with those who do rejoice and weep with those who weep. When those, when other people rejoice, how should you respond? Okay. How should you respond? Rejoice, right? When people rejoice, how should you respond? Rejoice. When people weep, how should you respond? Weep with them. If, if we do the other thing, if we respond wrongly, I want you to just think about what this, what this looks like. To rejoice with those who are weeping or to um, weep with those who are rejoicing. When you weep with those who are rejoicing, that's called envy, right? Someone gets a promotion and you get angry. Why do you get angry when someone else is rejoicing? Why do you weep when someone else is rejoices? Tell me. What sin is that? You're thinking you should have gotten it. That's a sin of pride. That goes all the way back to the very beginning, that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We're not thinking soberly. When, we, when, when people rejoice and we're weeping, that's, that's jealousy. That's, um, we, are, we are angry that they have succeeded where we have not. And the other way around is just plain mean. When people are suffering and you laugh at them, that's just plain mean. That is not kind. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's easy for us to say that and say, oh, I agree with that, Pastor, but do you really? Like, there are people who suffer, and sometimes we get a good chuckle. We watch things on the internet, and we see people suffering, and we laugh. We say, boy, that's hilarious. Do you see that horrible thing this person did? And you laugh, and you think how embarrassed they must be. to do. You realize that they're a child of God, too, and it's not right for us to rejoice when people are weeping. We should have a sensitivity towards others. And the application of the church body is we are all one body, and the gifts differ from one another, so we should bless those who curse you. We should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We keep going as we respond to others appropriately. We are to um, live with humility, verses 16 and 17. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no man evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Be of the same mind. Have unity. There's a negative command here. Don't set your mind on high things, on, on elevated things. Don't consider yourself too good for simple pleasures. Okay, oh, I'm too good for that. Oh, I don't eat, I don't eat Walmart brand cereal. Oh, you know. I only do such and such. If you do that, if you say you only or deal with the finer things in life, you are separating yourself out from people and you are being prideful. 
Here, we ought to, I think this happens even on the, when we go on mission trips on the mission field, we tell our, when I was a youth pastor and we tell the teens, I'm sure Pastor Drew, and not so much in, in San Francisco, but when you go overseas or if you go in a place where you might be fed food that you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure exactly what this is. We are to engage with them. We are to be humble and live with humility. We're to be, live with unity. You are not to be wise in your own opinion. I love this phrase because everyone today is wise in our own opinion. We are clever in our own sight. In fact, this verse or this phrase is warned against several times in Scripture. In Isaiah, Isaiah 5 says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Do not be wise. Don't think of yourself as so smart or that you're always right. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7, 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Look at verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Do, do you take a step back and, and evaluate your life honestly or ask other people to have input into your life? Or are you so set in your ways you know the right answer? And your main job is to convince everyone else to agree with you. Don't be so wise in your own eyes. Be willing to ask questions. Live with humility and live a peaceable life. Live a peaceful life, sorry, a peaceful life, even with your enemies. He says in verse 18, uh, I'm sorry, let's uh, back up to verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, live at peace with everyone. Notice the phrases. He says, if it is possible, which indicates what? It might not be possible. If it's possible, what's the second thing? As much as depends on you, which means that as far as you can handle it, as far as you can make the decisions, you are to live at peaceably with all men. Not just some people you are to be living at peace with all people, if it's possible, as much as depends on you. And how do you do that? Do not seek for vengeance. Do not seek to avenge yourself. Give place to God's wrath. Allow God to deal out vengeance according to his plan. Now, how is, how is God's wrath, how is God's vengeance given out? Do not avenge yourselves, but give place to God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How do you how do you do this? Well, there's several ways. First, God's wrath can be divinely brought. I have often given the illustration here. When I was uh, in high school, I struggled with my complexion a lot. I had all kinds of pimples, and I was, I was, I was struggling, man. I was one of those struggling high schoolers. I, I think everyone felt really, a lot of compassion for me, except for my younger brother. He loved to pick and poke and prod, and he loved to make fun of me, and he had all these names for me that had something to do with pimples and zits and all that kind of stuff. It was gross. It was terrible. But, you know, it's just part of living and part of growing up with a brother. And I used to get so mad at him, and my mom, who was here this morning, she used to tell me, she says, Marshall, you just let God deal with him. You don't mess with him, and just don't, don't, just, you let, God's going to deal with him, and when he does, you don't want to be around for that, and would you believe it? He got the worst boil you've ever seen in your life in the most inopportune place you can imagine. He couldn't sit down for like a week because he had to have that thing professionally lanced, and it took after this whole process that uh, my mom said, remember when we talked about this? I think God was dealing with him as only God can. You know, God can bring divine intervention 
And I happen to think in my little mind that perhaps that was divine intervention. I don't know. I like to think that way. But you know, God can all, God's wrath can also be brought through his instruments, including human government. Uh, the, the government bears a sword, it, it, and, and Romans 13, we're going to read about that uh, later. And it is an instrument of God's work. And so what he's saying here is that you need to release vengeance to God and to his instruments. There may be times where you have to say, I'll let the government deal with this. I'm not going to go be vigilante here and go handle this myself. We should not be pursuing our own wrath, our own vengeance for those who have wronged us because the Lord is the one who will exact justice and vengeance. Vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay, says the Lord. And because that is the case, how are we to treat our, our enemies? If your enemy is hungry, what does it say? Feed him. Earlier, we were told to look out for the needs of the church, to give hospitality to those who are in the church. We are also to look out for the needs of those who are near us. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. There's a couple different ways of understanding that phrase. Um, number one would be God's judgment. That's the heaping the coals of fire, that that's judgment of God. Option two is it's some sort of ritual of reconciliation, but probably the, the most obvious and, and logical option for what this means is that, it, is that heaping coals of fire on his head would cause your enemy to blush with shame and remorse, and it might actually lead to his conversion. That by, by heaping coals of fire on his head, you are em- embarrassing him by being so kind to him. You are killing him with kindness. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And he finalizes this chapter, he finishes this chapter with a simple phrase on how to deal with your enemies. Do not be overcome by evil. Do not allow evil to overcome you. Instead, you are to overcome evil, how? With good. Do not let evil overthrow your life. You overthrow evil with good. What does this look like? This looks like when someone comes at you with evil intent in their heart, when someone says bad words to you, when someone says mean things to you, when your spouse throws evil at you, when your friend says something bad to you, when your children, anyone, when anyone throws evil at you, when people overwhelm you with evil or try to overcome you by evil, our tendency is to fight fire with fire, isn't it? When we say, oh yeah, you want to play that game? Two can play that game, and we get right back in their face. What does the Bible say we are to do when evil comes our way? Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't fight fire with fire, you fight fire with water. We are to overcome evil with good. In fact, Jesus, I think, is the example for us in this passage. He tells us, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And do you realize that isn't it good that Jesus thinks this way and acts this way? Because we hated him. We were his enemies. And Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies against God, what did Christ do for us? 
he overcame evil with good. If you're going to be Christ-like, if you are going to reflect Christ, if you're going to be conformed to the image of his son, if you're going to act out being transformed by the renewing of your mind, if you are going to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, this is the active way in which it happens. You actively overcome evil by being good and doing good and speaking good. And that means that you can't be passive about it. You have to look at your life, you have to look at those around you and be peaceful even with those who hate you. This begins how we are to live out the gospel. We can live out the gospel properly in our relationships. I'm amazed, and I'll end with this. I'm amazed at how so much of Romans chapter 12 and even following, so much of the implications for the gospel are relationship-based. They are how we live with people because living with people is hard business. Living with people can be very challenging, and you can tend to give up, and you can say, I don't want to deal with this. It's too much trouble. It's not worth the trouble. I'm not going to invest in people because they just hurt me or whatever. I've heard it all. We need to recognize that despite the fact of all the reasons we might not want to engage with people, we might not want to be giving ourselves to others, God shows us the example. God shows us the pattern to follow. We must invest in others. We must love other people. Father, we ask today you'd help us to live out the gospel, knowing that we are saved from our sin. We are given hope in heaven, not because of any righteousness we have done, but through your mercy, through your grace, gift, We cannot have any pride of our own. We do not have any reason to boast or to withhold kindness to others, but we should be kind and loving even to those who hate us and curse us. Lord, help us be diligent. Help us to be fervent in spirit as we serve you. Help us to act out our gifts in a proper way. Lord, help us to love one another, to show Christ-like love towards those who hate us, that we might overcome evil with good and the good that you define, the good that you show us in your word. Help us, Lord, as we now think about how we can live out in these relationships this week. I pray we would do so in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.